investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome investors, traders, speculators, and podcast listeners to episode 46 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessler. Today is January 3rd, 2020. That's right. A brand new year. We took a bit of a hiatus there, a couple weeks off. But things are really picking back up in the market. A lot of interesting events over the break that we want to discuss. One thing that we wanted to chat about is, you know, 2019 was really a banner year for all sorts of asset classes, especially the S&P 500, which had its best year since 2013. But with that, valuations have hit all time highs. That being said, is it time to diversify? Some very interesting M&A news is happening right now. In fact, my favorite uh, merger situation, Wesco, started a bidding war for Annexter, topping private equity firm CDNR. How high can Annexter go? Another M&A situation, satellite company MDA sells to Canadian Investor Group for $1 billion. Why are they buying it? And lastly, some geopolitical macro stuff. We're going to chat about that the U.S. military killed Iran's powerful military commander, Qasem Soleimani, by airstrike in Iraq. What are the market implications? So the S&P 500 finished 2019 with its best performance since 2013. Just pretty exceptional result. But... Nearly all of the annual game gain in the index came from multiple expansion. And what is multiple expansion? That refers to just an increase in the earnings multiple driven by an improvement in sentiment. So there's a number of things that can lead to investment returns. One is the multiple that uh, investors put on earnings. The second is earnings growth. And the third is just uh, dividends as a portion of total returns. But Despite zero profit growth in 2019, U.S. equity valuations now sit at all-time highs on a number of measures. These include uh, price to sales, EV to EBITDA, and a third measure, market cap to GDP, which happens to be the favorite broad-based valuation measure of none other than Warren Buffett. And if you look at long term of these metrics, price to sales, EV to EBITDA, market cap to GDP, they're in fact matching or exceeding previous market peaks as the tech bubble in 2000 and also the uh, big run up into 1929. And everyone knows what happened both the, both those eras after 1929 stock market crash. I believe the Dow Jones over the next uh, you know five years went down something like 80%. And then after the uh, tech boom of the late 90s, quite the hangover there with the S&P 500 declining over 50%, not calling for that, just calling for perhaps some prudence and some caution in the market with all these various valuation measures saying the same thing, which is just kind of flashing yellow as a warning. Another measure is CNN's Fear and Greed Index, clocked in at 95, which is the highest extreme greed ranking on record, which goes back only three years. Another valuation metric that people look at is the cyclically adjusted price-to-earning ratio. Now, this hit 
31, which happens to be the highest of all time, excluding the tech bubble of 99, 2000. So it briefly went above 40 during that era. However, it is higher than it was in 1929, and it is this CAPE ratio, cyclically adjusted price to earnings. It's actually double the average of uh, 16 where it's been historically. If we look at uh, earnings on a one-year basis, S&P 500 PE ratio sits at 24.3 based on trailing earnings. Now this is 54% higher than its historical average of nearly 16. So what does this tell you? Well, at best, you're likely to accept uh, or expect very low or much lower than average future market returns. I have a couple of forecasts here. Goldman Sachs is predicting 2020 returns of 5.5%, and this is largely based on um, earnings growth. I know street consensus for S&P earnings growth is about 7 to 8% right now, and so if you maintain that same market multiple, i.e. what investors pay for those earnings, and you get that 7 to 8% growth, then you should see a good return in the market. However, straight estimates are always way too high and pretty much every single year those come down as we progress throughout the year. Bank of America, they're a bit more bearish. However, they still project a gain. This one is only 2.4%. And lastly, BMO Capital Markets with a 5.5% gain for the index. So no strategist really sticking their neck out here predicting uh, any significant performance. Certainly not like 2019 where we saw gains of north of 30%. Uh, what are your thoughts on current market valuations here? Yeah, in terms of market valuations, I would just like to preface preface our conversation with the, the fact that the fact that markets are overvalued right now, specifically the S&P 500, doesn't mean it can't become more overvalued in a historical context. It yeah, just I means mean, they've that they've been really poor timing tools, especially over the past 10 years that they, they just kept going higher and higher, right? Absolutely. Really, over since about 2013, 2014, you know, markets have been above historical averages. So you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it is difficult to time these, but nonetheless, looking at you know what is actually driving some of this multiple expansion in the S&P 500 so over the last 10 years the S&P earnings have grown at about 9.8% annualized which is a very healthy rate of, of growth on the earnings side it's, and that's earnings per share yes which yes. is different than net earnings because you can have earnings per share growth through an increase in earnings or uh, a decrease in shares outstanding, which we've seen pretty significantly over the past 10 years. Many, many public, publicly traded corporations buying back shares, which juices earnings per share growth. Absolutely, just, just the same with EPS. There's a numerator and a dom denominator. Yeah. Same with the PE ratio, and it's interesting to dig down into those elements to see what's actually driving it. But as I had mentioned, so 9.8% for EPS, and price the price part of that ratio has grown at 11.2%. Now that's excluding dividends. Um, if, if you include dividends, it would be 13.5%. And then for the TSX 60 as well, so it's currently sitting at a 12-month trailing PE ratio of 16.4 times relative to a 10-year average of 17.3 times. So it's actually sitting a bit below the 10-year average. But looking into that, you've seen that earnings have grown on the TSX 
ASX 60 at 4.2% annualized. So over, you know, less than half of the S&P 500 earnings growth, EPS growth, um, while the price has grown at just 3.9% excluding dividends. If you include dividends, it would be 7%. Uh, but one other thing, just looking at this past decade in, uh, in the markets, in is to look at the TSX top returners over the decade. Now, the Financial Post had a nice little article pointing out some of these top performers over the last 10 years. And I think people would be very surprised to see that these aren't really in highly sought, for the most part, aren't in highly sought after industries like cannabis or the really upper echelons of tech, or of tech where you know consumer tech, is, you know, something like Apple or Blackberry um, for earlier in the decade, um, but some really boring companies, for example, the Boyd Group, which is a Winnipeg-based auto body shop, is up 4,000 over 4,200% over the last 10 years. Constellation Software up over 4,000%, which is a favorite among value investors. Uh, they really just have a roll-up acquisition strategy in niche enterprise software verticals and led by their uh, now famous CEO Mark Leonard to uh, hardcore investors. As well, a couple others, Dollarama, which just operates simple uh, dollar stores, is up over 1,100%. And CCL Industries, probably the most boring of the companies just mentioned, up over 1,000% over the last decade. And they are the world's largest label makers. So you really don't have to find a lot of these very highly sought after industries, something that would sound very good at a cocktail party to make money in the markets. Yeah, and I think one thing that investors have to consider is what now you look out uh, into you know the current market dynamic and see that the the U.S. equities highly valued. Yes, you have had pretty tremendous uh, earnings per share growth over the past ten years. However, on top of that, you've had even greater multiple expansion compared to other markets. So what we're seeing now is on multiple metrics, uh, S and P five hundred the highest valuation of all time. And some people say, oh, interest rates are low, they had the tax cut, et cetera, et cetera. But you look at Japan, their interest rates have never been lower yet versus 1988, their market's down significantly. In, 19, in the late 80s, Japan went to like uh, north of 70 to 80 times earnings, and now they're you know sub 15 times. So I think you can find tremendous values in Japan, emerging markets, which have done quite poorly, Europe. And so what I'm saying here is perhaps if you're a US-focused investor, you can maybe consider diversifying, looking into Japanese stocks, which prevent or present pretty tremendous values on a relative basis these days, not to mention Europe, Canada, emerging markets, which imply a much higher earnings yield. And really the, pr the primary determinant of future investment returns is really starting valuation. I like the Howard Marks quote where he indicated that it's not what you own but it's what you pay that determines your results in investing. So it's really important to consider when estimating future returns, what is the starting valuation? So certainly investors should think about diversifying, not just different geographies, but perhaps different asset classes as well. Looking at fixed income, there's a lot of options there. Um, you know, Government bonds, investment grade credit, junk bonds, uh, levered loans, you can look at alternatives. Uh, which is just a, a vast array of, of various strategies, private equity, hedge funds, etc. And so that's something to really keep in mind as the S&P 500 specifically reaches the highest valuation of all time.
And just to disclose, we do have long positions in both Boyd Group and Constellation Software. Onto the most interesting M&A situation in the market currently, interloper Wesco International has commenced a vicious bidding war with private equity firm Clayton Dubillier and Rice, also known as CD&R, for electrical component distributor Annexter International. So what happened here is a couple months ago, CDNR struck a friendly deal to acquire Annexter for 81 bucks per share in cash. Now, what this represented was a really disappointing result for Annexter shareholders. It was only at a 13.5% control premium, which represents the bid price compared to the unaffected price prior to the bid. And it represented a valuation of eight times EBITDA. Now, for comparative purposes, over the past eight years, I looked at our database um, and over thousands of M&A transactions, the average control premium was 37%. So that 13.5% premium is quite a bit below the average, not to mention the, the S&P 500 is currently trading at about 13.3 times EBITDA. So CDNR getting to buy Annexter at eight times EBITDA, that is relatively low versus current valuations in the market. So what happened? Unsurprisingly, uh, an interloper came in, an Annexter competitor, Westco International, uh, they came in with an unsolicited proposal, announced it with the public, and over the past month, there's been this back and forth takeover battle where uh, CDNR uh, announces a friendly bid, WCC Westco tops it, it goes back and forth. And where we're at now, the price has gone from CDNR's initial 81 per share bid to now $97 per share, which is Westco's current unsolicited or hostile proposal, uh, which represents an increased valuation to 9.5 times EBITDA and a control premium of 36%, putting it in line with historical transactions, which were at 37%. The other key dynamic here is that Wesco is a competitor to Annexter and CDNR is purely a financial buyer. And so Wesco has this unique opportunity to generate cost savings or synergies uh, because they have significant overlap with Annexter. And those synergies are worth $200 million. And we're talking about Annexter's EBITDA of less than $500 million. $200 million represents a substantial amount of synergies. And including those synergies brings that 9.5% or 9.5 times EBITDA estimate to below seven times. So those synergies uh, due to the overlap between Wesco and Annexter represent a value creating opportunity that private equity firms such as CDNR really can't match. So that's a real key component here why CDNR is really you know, gonna have a tough time to, to compete. But on the other hand, we've discussed this in the past on how much money, how much capital is flooded into the private equity industry such that there's now 2.5 trillion of dry powder. And by dry powder, we mean capital that's been raised by private equity firms that they absolutely need to spend in order to start generating their lucrative 2 and 20 fees. And so you have CDNR, a private equity firm that is really desperate to put money to work. They thought they had a good deal with Annexter at eight times EBITDA, but Wesco has come in over the top, faced, forced them to pay increasingly higher 
prices. So it's a really super interesting dynamic and just a massive win for arbitragers here. I was looking at the average spread or um, you know the discount between the current price and the consideration of the entire current merge arbitrage universe that's at about 1.4 percent which equates to a five percent annualized return or yield you look at what's happened with annexer and a shareholder bought it the first day after cdnr's initial friendly 81 per share bid has been announced you've had a 16 percent return over two months now that is significantly higher than the current 1.4 percent spread uh, in the market and that 16 percent over two months is about 100 percent annualized so as an arbitrager that really just has the ability to make your year because you have a much 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 better return than you expect, and it's really just a, a sweet Christmas gift to arbitragers. They're kind of the main winner here, aren't they? Absolutely, and also coming in at the end of the year, so just the timing of it, just phenomenal for them. Uh, one thing to mention, I mean, you know, what you were kind of alluding to with the dynamic with the private equity firm CDNR and Wesco is really just that CDNR likely has a way lower cost of capital than Wesco, just given the their ability to raise dry powder. And as well, one thing that we have mentioned on the podcast before is the go shop provisions that, that LBO firms typically do offer um, on buyout ca- to buyout candidates. And this is actually an example for Annexter shareholders where there was an initial go shop provision. So this is an actual example where this has worked out quite well for the go shop. Um, I mean, it's it's just a very interesting dynamic. Um, a lot of ir- somewhat irrational bidding um, and will be one to follow into the new year. It'll be very interesting on how this ends up. Yeah, like you said, a lot of interesting dynamics to mention the successful GoShop process and by GoShop that allows the target company board to go solicit other buyers here. Obviously, in this one, success and finding another bidder through Wesco. The other is auction process dynamics such that annexer shareholders are uh, benef- they benefit from what's called or what's known as the auction winner's curse where you have two parties competing, neither of them wants to lose, and so you end up with non-fundamental pricing and better than expected result for Annexter shareholders just given those competitive dynamics. The third thing that we have yet to mention is that it was disclosed in a regulatory filing just today that CDNR also tried to buy Wesco last month at 68 bucks per share represents uh, roughly 25% premium for Wesco shareholders. And so what I think Wesco is trying to accomplish here is what's known as kind of the Pac-Man defense. And Pac-Man defense is a takeover defense mechanism where uh, the target company kind of turns around to buy the acquirer company. And now in this case, they can't buy CDNR, but they can buy CDNR target Annexter with the goal of saving their own jobs, not just that, but harvesting those synergies for West Coast shareholders instead of CDNR investors. So a lot of interesting dynamics here and really just a great case study on uh, merger arbitrage and auction process, a go shop process and a competitive bidding war on really the best case scenario uh, for an arbitrage. Absolutely. And with the case study example as well, looking back to the merger docs when it was at the time of the original bid, there was discussion of 
you know, a bitter A, which was unnamed at that time. And so it is interesting to follow it through from that, the start of that process to now where that bitter has now been named with, with Wesco. Um, so just a very interesting case study that anybody looking to learn about merger arbitrage is a, a very good case study to follow. Yeah, and as for the result, I mean, it's still inconclusive. Where we're at right now is that CDNR has a friendly deal at 93.50. Wesco, over the past day or two, came out with a $97 topping offer. We have yet to hear back from CDNR, but when we do, uh, we'll let you know. Some more M&A news with space tech company MDA, formerly known as McDonald, Detwiller and Associates. It's being acquired by a group of Canadian investors, including John Risley, who's the co-founder of Clearwater Fine Foods, and Jim Balsilli, the co-founder of BlackBerry. And now both these guys are quite wealthy, uh, perhaps billionaires or at least centimillionaires. This $1 billion acquisition of the company from the US-based parent Maxar Technologies, which has really struggled as of late. This will see MDA's headquarters move back to Canada after their ill-advised merger with Digital Globe just a few years ago. Now for investors, these investors, Balsilli, Risley, amongst others, it's a bet that MDA will play a critical part in supplying players into this new space race where they're all competing to create uh, low earth orbit constellations to drive global internet coverage. Basically, internet driven not through Wi-Fi or your cell network, but uh, low Earth orbit satellites up in the sky where you can access internet basically anywhere in the world. So MDA and Max are really struggled. Uh, number one, lower demands for these uh, geospatial satellites that they were manufacturing. Basically the main market for those were satellite TV. And we all know consumers are moving from satellite TV to streaming. Uh, satellite TV is super expensive and you know people are canceling their direct TV subscriptions that go for over a hundred bucks a month going with Netflix which costs you know maybe 10 bucks a month. So they have faced years of declining revenue and profits. Maxar put MDA on the block this summer to raise money to cut its sizable 3.1 billion dollar debt load. Now the sale of this Canadian business MDA is an attempt to right the ship at Maxar who have seen their shares drop 90% in value from late 2017 uh, to just a couple of weeks ago before having a bit of a rally off of this deal. Uh, Maxar's stock was up 20% on the news, uh, but really there's no guarantee that internet from space will work. We know of a couple of other companies that have tried it. One is Iridium, another one was Global Star. You have a lot of big players moving into the space such as Amazon, Facebook, Apple, SpaceX, there's a number of firms going for this dream of global internet coverage through satellites. So will MDA be the one to benefit from that? I mean, who knows? Yeah, absolutely. And just to go into a little bit of the background of uh, the backers of this deal, John Risley and Jim Balsilli. So Risley was the founder of Clearwater Fine Foods and he's a Nova Scotia native with, he has an estimated net worth of about 1.2 billion. Uh, I believe that was as of 2015. So there could be a little bit of volatility around those numbers. Um, and then Jim Balsilli, now he was one of the co-founders of Research in Motion, which is now BlackBerry. So one of Canada's 
most famous uh, tech companies in, in recent history. Used to be. Yeah, yes, absolutely. But I might, may say infamous. Um, but, you know, his estimated net worth now is about $800 million. But he really became a high-profile figure as well during his attempts to buy NHL franchises. And he ultimately failed three times to do so between 2006 and 2009. And that really marked the peak valuation for Research in Motion shares as well. Absolutely. And, you know, his struggles to buy an NHL franchise was really just his goal of bringing a team, a, a second team to Southern Ontario, which he was ultimately uh, unsuccessful to be able to do. Um, but as well, he, I mean, when this, when this transaction does close, he will be uh, joining the board. Um, he's really kind of come out of retirement the last few years. And I know the Globe and Mail a few months ago had a, a big piece on him um, about being a big proponent of bringing Canadian tech back home. Um, he, he has talked a lot in depth about the dangers of foreign-owned tech companies operating within Canada, as well as foreign-owned companies getting control over Canadian tech companies. So this is really him just walking the walk, I guess, with uh, bringing a, uh, a legacy company back home. And as well, you know, this does, MD, specific to McDonald, Detweiler and Associates, you know, they do have a bit of history with the Investment Canada Act. Do you want to go into that a little bit, Julian? Yeah, a number of years ago, probably about 15 years ago, uh, there was an acquisition proposal of McDonald Detweiler by a US-based company. And back then, they did not have the Investment Canada Act, which is uh, US equivalent to CFIUS. Basically, it governs uh, foreign acquisitions of Canadian companies. And at the time, the Harper government was concerned with respect to national security because McDonald Detweiler were building uh, satellites for the Canadian government. So what the Harper government did is they formed this new uh, government department called um, Industry Canada, which implemented the new Investment Canada Act at the time. And this deal was the first time it was ever used to block a deal. So this, the in initial sale of McDonald Detweiler to a U.S. firm uh, roughly 15 years ago 13 to 15 years ago, was blocked uh, by the new Investment Canada Act, which is still around today. I think it might have been used, oh yeah, was used on the blockage of the Acon sale to Chinese investors, but it's uh, a very uh, rare tool that the government actually utilizes to block deals, but this is one example of, uh, of a company in which the government has used it to block an acquisition. However, this sale to Canadian investors is effectively a reversal, bringing MDA back home to Canada where it was uh, initially created and where it really thrived. Absolutely. And just back to the Investment Canada Act, I mean, even though it isn't, it's rarely used to truly block deals, it's more just seen as a disincentive for any of those deals that could potentially be announced to be announced in the first place. Wanted to touch on a bit of macro news, some geopolitical conflicts happening as the U.S. military killed Iran's powerful military commander, Qasem Soleimani. Now, he it was the head of Iran's elite Quds force and the mastermind of Iran's military strategy in the region. Now, Soleimani was widely seen as the second most powerful figure in Iran. 
President Trump, he stated that Soleimani was, quote, directly and indirectly responsible for the deaths of millions of people. A statement from the Pentagon indicated that Soleimani had been developing plans to attack American diplomats and service members in Iraq and throughout the region. The strike was aimed at deterring future future Iranian attack plans. And as you can see, this was really just a preemptive strike, a defensive strike, not necessarily uh, in reaction to anything he did yet. However, they were fearful that he was going to do something and they had the opportunity, they took him out. Now this killing really marks an escalation in tensions between Iran and the U.S. And you saw it in the market action today, uh, equity markets trading down. You had the price of oil, obviously, when there's conflict in the Middle East, uh, that tends to have potential supply issues. So oil was up 2 to 3%. Gold, a safe haven asset, was up nearly 2% on the news. So interesting market dynamic, but ultimately something that is expected. Got a quote here from the Iran foreign minister. He called the attack an act of international terrorism, tweeting that the U.S. bears responsibility for all consequences of its rogue adventurism. So some market participants concerned about potential blowback from Iran on this deal. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the price reaction you saw, like in the in the minutes after this was announced, um, there was quite a bit of volatility. But keep in mind that that those that is after hours trading, and so the markets are a little less liquid. So the price movements are, by their very nature, a little bit more, um, well, just larger by nature. Um, so oil prices, you know, increasing about 3.14 percent by market close today. So that did come down a bit um, throughout the day today, as you know, we're about 18 or 20 hours. Um, since this attack actually happened. And so, you know, really seeing somewhat of a muted reaction by now. Um, so for long-term investors, this really isn't something to worry about at this point. Obviously, how Iran responds to this, that will determine, you know, what the future market ramifications will be. But at this point, it's kind of too early to, to say one way or another, um, but also very difficult to say that this is something that's going to truly affect the long-term outlook on stocks. Yeah, exactly. You look at the long-term market implications beyond one day, and we look back a number of months ago where there was that strike on Saudi oil infrastructure. Yeah, oil went up uh, tremendously in one day, up double digits, but within weeks, it was back below where it was pre-strike. And so all of this is highly speculative. And at this point, there's really no supply side issues uh, for oil and um, perhaps and most likely that nothing is going to come of this as i said market action today purely speculative so safest bet for investors is just you know stay diversified and if you are then do nothing don't get spooked by uh, some of these some of these um you know media headlines like they say if it bleeds, then it leads, and the media tends to blow these things up. And then we're seeing really the uh, emergence of the first major meme of the new decade, which is World War III. And so I'm seeing quite a bit of that on uh, the old Twitter and Instagram. So it's something to keep an eye on, but uh, nothing to break a sweat over. All right, that's it for episode 46 of the Absolute Return podcast. If you liked it, you can always listen to more at Absolute Return 
podcast.com. You can send us an email if you have any questions or comments to info at accelerateshares.com. You can find a ton of content on our website, accelerateshares.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me. I'm the People's Hedge Fund Manager at Jay Klamachko. And for myself, it's M underscore Kesslering for any show recommendations. And until next week, uh, good luck trading, investing, speculating, and we will chat with you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.